Hi, I'm Ken Sweeney. This is The Comfortable Spot. Welcome. LemonSpeak has developed an exciting tool that simplifies content creation by analysing your podcast episodes and creating multiple text options for you to use. With a single click, you get a transcript, time text, a summary and show notes, as well as SEO-optimised titles, tweet suggestions and even a blog post. Prices are really competitive and start for as little as under €7 Euros, and there's even a free option should you wish to try out the service beforehand. You also get great backup and assistance should you encounter any problems. LemonSpeak is designed for active, independent podcasters who just don't have time to cover all the angles of producing a podcast. So for more information, go to LemonSpeak.com and get ready to experience a new way to get your podcast noticed. Today my guest is journalist and writer Ken Fox. With over 30 years experience in media, Ken has been at the forefront of investigative reporting and was the leading author of a long-running series of articles in 2009 regarding politicians' expenses that led to major changes in the way they were reimbursed. Ken is also a co-director of Right to Know, an Irish transparency organisation that campaigns for greater information access, and in his spare time, Ken is the author of a series of short stories. I was a long admirer of Ken's work, especially around the issues of freedom of information, and I was keen to have him on the comfortable spot as a guest. We have an in-depth discussion on the media and access to information. So I hope you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us. Ken, hi, how are you? Thanks for joining me on The Comfortable Spot. Hi, how are you? I'm not too bad. Um, We've had a bit of mad weather here in Ireland. I presume you're still based in Ireland, aren't you? Yeah, I'm I'm based in Dublin. Yeah, always have been um, for my whole life. Um, Never worked abroad, never worked anywhere but here. Um, I'm... You got the brunt of it as I did down here in Kildare. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, and I suppose we didn't we didn't suffer quite as badly as the west of Ireland, but um, well, nobody ever suffers as badly as the west of Ireland. <laughs> no, it's why that's the, for sure. it's why they love it over there, you know. Um, Ken, it's great to get you on. I was chatting to you online for a bit, and I've been following you online, in particular on Twitter and so on, or X as they like to call it now, and. You know, we're going to talk about two things, I presume, today. Mostly it's about um, this project that you're involved in, the Right to Know project. And, of course, we're going to talk about something that you're very passionate about, the freedom of information and how it's used in Ireland and how important it is to be aware of it. But what I'd like to start with today is about your own career and maybe talk a little bit about journalism in Ireland. Because, you know, we're, 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 we're middle-aged guys now. So, you know, our perception of journalism when we were younger is probably very different to what it is now. And we've had the time, I suppose, to see a lot of drastic changes. We've seen journalism move from primarily TV and print media onto online media. We've seen a few startups that have been both um, maybe proactive and notorious at the same time. So I'm just wondering um, what got you into journalism initially and... Maybe we can move on from that. Yeah, well, my kind of entry into journalism was a little bit kind of um, accidental in a sense. Um, I didn't do as well in my leaving search as I probably should have done. Um, My concentration for study uh, wasn't where it could have been. So um, some of the things that I kind of wanted to do, I I would have been interested in doing medicine or something like that. But I, I wouldn't have had the points for that. And um, I was just about to start repeating my leave insert in a school in the south inner city. And I was there for a couple of days and it became very clear to me that the last thing in the universe that I wanted to do was to spend another year in secondary school and to do my leaving cert again. And by coincidence, in the second round of the CEO offers, um, I got offered a place in the journalism course in DCU and I leapt at the opportunity. I'd always had an interest in writing. Um, I wouldn't say I was obsessed with current affairs or 
newspapers or media or anything like that, like quite a few of the people in my class would have been. That kind of came later, I suppose, as I studied media and so on. And so really, that was uh, that was how I got into journalism. Then I did my um, four year degree in, in DCU. I suppose one of the things that used to happen back then was because it was prior to transition year was it wouldn't be uncommon for somebody to spend an entire year of uh, university as just a 17 year old. So my first year in college, I wasn't even legally allowed to drink. And you're not really mature enough um, at that age. I certainly wasn't for college. And, you know, I found it difficult to it wasn't that I wasn't enjoying it, but I found it difficult to to get to grips with the academic side of it, the kind of differences between kind of school and college life, the freedoms that go along with it, the the optional nature of lectures, the fact that there wasn't kind of somebody standing over your shoulder all the time. And I suppose it was only really in second year that I kind of started to maybe mature a little bit. Um, and it was then, I suppose, that my passion for journalism began to kind of blossom. Um, and then when we were in fourth year of uh, university, or third or fourth year, I can't remember which one it was, there was always, uh, DCU always had uh, work placement. So um, all the people in my class, we went and did our placements in various newspapers. And it was kind of considered at the time, you know, um, there was a prestige in getting a placement with the Irish Times or with the Irish Independent or one of the broadsheet newspapers. And that was very much the kind of the the perspective that we would have been surrounded by in university, that there was and um, these were the more serious newspapers and so on. But one of uh, me and one of my classmates, we got our placement in the Sunday world. And it was really one of the best things that ever happened um, to me because where some of my colleagues went to newspapers and were left sitting in a corner or going buying bags of chips and doing kind of uh, grunt work at best. In the Sunday world, we were treated um, it just incredibly well and mentored. Uh, there was a news editor called uh, Sean Boyne, who worked in the Sunday world for a very, very long period of time. And the level of mentoring that he gave was extraordinary to the extent that when me and my uh, classmate, we would write stories, he would print them out and he would come and sit down with us and go through them and tell us about the strengths and weaknesses of what we had written. And I don't think that happened to any other students from our class. Um, within a, within maybe four or five weeks, I had a, a story on the kind of the sidebar of the front page as well. So we were given kind of exposure. We were given kind of scope to develop. It was brilliant for, for developing our confidence. And um, by the end of the placement, you know, the, the two of us uh, really felt like we were we were we were ready to kind of get into the workplace where some of our colleagues came back from placement and they really didn't feel that way. They hadn't had bylines and papers. They hadn't even got close to that. And it was nothing that they did. It was entirely to do with them, with the, with the newspaper title, the, the news editors or the editors they were working with and their approach to, to how they dealt with students. And the Sunday world was, were, were just there were so many people there that were so generous with their time from the editor right down to all the different reporters and the thing about the Sunday world was that the stories that you were covering they were very down to earth very realistic stories and they were kind of gritty stories weren't they because you know that's what the Sunday world kind of specialized in isn't it? it was crime it was kind of revealing the kind of darker side of you know the inner city and stuff like that and some of them were you know, tough stories to read, but yeah, it kind of you kind of you kind of learned on the on the run, didn't you? As you were as you were writing and, and investigating. Yeah, well, I suppose like you know, we were we were coming in at the at the bottom rung in the sense. So a lot of what we would have been doing was kind of breaking news or kind of features 
and the things that the Sunday world was famous for, you know, in terms of crime in particular at that time. And Paul Williams was the crime correspondent and was extremely high profile. And it was also in that period, not long after Veronica Guerin had been murdered. So really crime uh, was the lifeblood, not just of the tabloid newspapers at the time, but quite a few of the the broadsheet newspapers as well. It was a massive part of of what everybody did. Mm-hmm. And in regards to say your work, then did you did when you came out of college? Did you go straight into to to working as a journalist, or did you say, do you know what? Maybe I'll try freelancing. So when when um, when we had a, also in DCU as part of our course, we had a term abroad, which is uh, called Erasmus, which is a pretty common part of the university experience. So I went to Paris with a couple of my classmates because we, um, another aspect of the journalism that, that we studied was that we we learned it with a language and I learned it with French. So I had a few months in Paris and I came back and basically because of the the level of experience that I'd had in the Sunday world, the star were willing to give me some freelance work so where I would do basically what we called tips. So it would just be a day's work, you know, and you'd get a day rate for it. And um, for the first kind of year and a little bit, that's what I did. I did shifts in the star. Um, it very quickly turned into certainly a kind of a, a living. Uh, I, I was certainly able to financially survive on it. I was actually doing quite well because obviously I didn't have uh, a mortgage. Rents were a bit cheaper. I didn't have kids and all of the things that uh, draw your draw your money. So I was kind of doing well in that sense. I wasn't earning mega money, but it was I was doing well. And um, so I was going along and I was doing this three shifts a week or five shifts a week and. I remember there was one period where I ended up working for 30 days in a row. So you'd get, there'd be more work when people were on holidays and all this type of thing. And so I kept at that. And again, I had really good experience in the star. There was one particular person in there, um, a man called Bernard Phelan, who, who unfortunately passed away a number of years ago. He was a real gentleman. Again, a great mentor and somebody who was actually willing to put time into young reporters to actually teach. Um, to a greater extent, he probably put a bit more pressure on me than I would have felt in the Sunday world. And that was good as well, because obviously pressure can 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 make you a bit sharper. Um, and I suppose one thing to say is that back then as well, the media was much more robust. There was a lot more money. They had a lot more resources and it was really, really super competitive. So every story, the newspapers fought like dogs over to get the best angle or photographs. And it was really super, super competitive. And that has massively diminished over the years to the extent that uh, obviously I don't work in journalism um, in, in a in a daily newspaper sense anymore but I don't get that sense that it's quite as competitive there aren't just aren't enough people because the pressures on reporters now are to produce more material rather than go after one story really really hard so I did that with the star for a while and then I got offered a full-time job with the Irish Mirror I worked there for a couple of years and then I moved to what was then called Ireland on Sunday, and which is now the Irish Mail on Sunday. And, um, you know, I was, because I suppose the time I had come into journalism, crime was the big thing. That was the, that was what I ended up covering. It was mostly crime and security and things like that. And I suppose then in 2008 or 2009, I got offered a job in the Sunday Tribune. And I switched over and it was my first time working on a broadsheet newspaper, which I had always really wanted to do. And there was already a really good crime correspondent there called Ali Bracken. And so the news editor, um, he wanted me to sort of 
become a more general reporter who would cover various things, you know, might be health or education, a bit of politics, just a kind of a bit of more of an all-rounder. And I think it was around then that I began to develop uh, my interest in FOI. I had been using it a little bit, but I began to to use it quite a bit more. And I suppose my kind of breakthrough, I suppose, in journalism, it came in 2009 when I wrote a series of stories about um, um, spending controversies involving the former Keown Corla, John O'Donoghue, and uh, expenses that had been incurred on his overseas travel. And some of your listeners will remember that. Um, he resigned afterwards. Um, it was a, a massive kind of story for about five or six months, as these things tend to be. There were major changes made to the expenses system for TDs and senators. And I wrote a book off the back of that. Um, it's one of two non-fiction books that I've written. And I suppose um, because that story was um, was so uh, rooted in my use of freedom of information laws and freedom of information requests, I began to sort of push the boundaries of what you could and couldn't get using FOI. And around the same time, um, uh, there was a guy called uh, Gavin Sheridan, who I work with now in the organization Right to Know. And he too was kind of, he was blogging um, quite a bit. Um, he began to post some of the receipts and invoices from the John O'Donoghue spending controversy because the Sunday Tribune, we literally didn't have, we didn't really have the web capability to do that. So he was posting this stuff at the same time. And he also, I suppose, simultaneous, we, we both began to kind of perceive that FOI up until then had been used in certain ways and was being used in those ways over and over again but that the boundaries of what you could do with it hadn't really been pushed. And I suppose over the years um, since, so that's, I mean, it's, it's a long time ago, it's 14 years ago, um, ever since I have kind of specialised in the use of freedom of information to get, um, to get access to public records and so on. Um, not too long after the John O'Donoghue controversy, the Sunday Tribune unfortunately closed down. I went to work with the Irish Mail on Sunday again for a while. And then I uh, I worked with the RTE investigations unit for a couple of years. And then just because my at the time, um, my wife was having our second child and the idea of being in an office 40 hours a week and spending 15 hours uh, driving back and forth to Donnybrook, it just didn't appeal to me anymore. And I took a job in uh, DIT where I lectured in journalism for a few years. Um, I wanted to I wanted to have that freedom um, to spend more time with my children because I'd seen, I've, I've known and seen too many people who spent the year the the especially those early years of their children's lives consumed by work and before they knew it the the kids were grown up and had their own friends and didn't want to hang around with their parents so much anymore and then during the pandemic um i began to just work for myself so i just freelance for myself now and my, my wife works in healthcare, so her job obviously never stopped during covid and it meant that I, when I was at home, I could look after the children while the schools were closed and through all of the disruption that, that took place then. And I suppose ever since I fall, we've fallen into kind of that, um, that setup now where I, I work from home, my wife works in a hospital and, um, you know, I take on a, a good chunk of the the child care responsibilities and not because I have to, but because actually it's the thing that, that, that really drives me. I just want to go back to a couple of things you were talking about there. You were saying that um, you're working with the Tribune and that, you know, that, pa that paper folded and, you know, going back even five years previous to that, 
there was a lot more newspapers and they were all clamming for the same stories and there was a lot more competition and so on. Um, did you did you think that that was something that was probably going to go and happen anyway in that, you know, newspapers were going to fold as, as a natural thing or was that be really because of the way the media and journalism was progressing in that it was going more online and people were looking more to international media rather than local media. What, what was your opinion on that? Well, when I went into journalism, you know, when I started off in the star and the mirror, you know, journalism was in a sense, in one sense, it was a kind of a, a golden age. I won't, I, when I say a golden age, I don't so much mean a golden age in terms of the output, even though the output was very good. It was more of a, it was a, it was a golden age in terms of the finances of newspapers. And obviously it coincided with the Celtic Tiger years. So you had not only um, vast readership, you know, and the readership of uh, the purchase of newspapers in Ireland was was at levels that weren't, weren't seen anywhere else in the world. And people on a Sunday, for instance, might go and buy two or three different Sunday newspapers. And certainly most people bought a daily newspaper. But that transition was beginning that people were starting, uh, you know, at the when the Celtic Tiger crash came along. That was around the time that the Sunday Tribune folded. And I suppose one of the first things that would happen in a recession like that is that kind of discretionary spending like you would have for newspapers and so on. That was one of the first things to go. Um, and so ever since, really, um, so ever since that 2009-2010 period, newspapers in their printed form have been on a downward trajectory um, in terms of sales, in terms of circulation, in terms of their ability to attract advertising. And obviously, coinciding with that, we've had this, you know, enormous uh, growth in social media. And we've had these companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google become really the most important companies in the world. And all the while, they were cannibalizing the content that other people produced and hoovering up. Uh, most of the advertising revenue at the same time. So, you know, the newspaper industry in its in the form that I joined it is it's it's unrecognizable, um, and obviously it's in it's in this period of terminal decline. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. You know, even even this week we've had uh, announcements of further job cuts at one of the main. Uh, newspaper titles and you know there is the risk of other newspaper titles um not being here certainly not certainly not in five years time you know the the era of newspaper closures i don't think it would be realistic to say that it's over you know and it's it's sad uh, obviously for people who love journalism and people who work in journalism but you know, one of the things you see on social media is there's not a whole lot of sympathy, um, which is is difficult. It's difficult for journalists to to hear that. You know, you see the the announcement this week of um, job losses at a newspaper group, and it was uh, you know on social media it's being met with with glee. But that is the nature of social media. That is the level of discourse, um, and certainly that's the way Twitter has become. Um, a kind of a a very nasty, very cruel place, um, especially if you're, you know, an immigrant or if uh, if you were transgender. It's it's become a, become a horrible, horrible place. Yeah, and it's you 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 raise a few issues there that I think we can talk about. Is that you have then these so-called citizen journalisms, you know, these guys going around with cameras who claim to be journalists who've never spent a day in college doing journalism. They've never even spent a day working as an intern in an office, you know, of a newspaper. And, you know, they're going around the place and they have this, you know, this attitude that they, they're the purveyors of real news. And they have these huge amount of followers on online. And 
you know, as you say, then when somebody who's worked all their lives in a newspaper or on a media platform or in a television station and they're let go. And as you say, there's just this uh, glee, you know, because people are calling them, you know, they're the liars. They're the, you know, they're working with somebody else. They're George Soros on the payroll of George Soros or, you know, as they work with Fine Gael or whatever. It's it's incredibly um, demoralizing when you see all that, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I mean, it's I, I certainly um, it's it's eroded my um uh, my love for for journalism and the media because I just see the way that journalists and some very very good journalists get treated. Um, it, I've, it's it's difficult and and to an extent, it's I, I've taken a major step back from it from that public sphere, um, as kind of exemplified by Twitter because I don't really want to be part of it anymore. Because I think one of the things that I've always tried to do as a journalist is to try and act in good faith and also to base everything that I do on documentary evidence, on 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 proof, you know, and uh, rec- official records. But the way discourse has changed now is that people aren't interested in expertise or proof or evidence you know they're only interested in what advances their point of view and it got to the stage where you start to feel like it doesn't really matter if i post the accurate version of this because someone else's 10 other people are going to post an inaccurate version of it another group are going to come along and take the records that i publish and misinterpret them or use them to um use them for the purposes of discrimination for instance um you know records that i have published relating to immigration to the deportation system um, and other matters like that get weaponized by other people to pursue their own kind of cruel agenda and that cruel agenda has led to a situation now where we have people going around burning down properties rioting in the streets of Dublin and ultimately um, I think inevitably somebody is probably going to be killed um, because of this fervor that's being whipped up by some of those people that you mentioned these citizen journalists or self-styled journalists yeah and you know the question about some of the platforms that we're seeing just suddenly pop up out of nowhere and you know they claim to be these investigative journalists and I, I follow them just because I want to see what what's going on and where how are they you know how are they operating and there's no grounding to them Ken you just like you don't even know where they're being funded at least when you would tor- you would like open a newspaper 15 or 20 years ago you could see where the funding was coming from it was advertisers and so on but you just see these organizations and they're you know self-styled media platforms and you know who the you know the the ringleaders are and they're just there and they just you know we know we i don't even want to mention names but we saw what happened at the riots you know they started delivering these speeches on online and then suddenly people were just doing exactly what they were saying and, and it got out of control and people were being finger pointed and before you know it you know there was there was uh, more riots in the street and they just walk away scot-free I mean, how, do, how does that make you feel? Because I know it makes me very angry, but I don't know what to do about it. Yeah, and, and, a, and, a, and an individual person was wrongly identified as having committed a crime and ended up under needing armed guards, you know, and, and there's no repercussions for misinformation, you know, and the misinformation continues to spread. And it's like, a, it's like uh, when, I, when I joined Twitter, I was a kind of a, I, I kind of, joined it quite early, but it took me a long time before I began to use it in earnest. More so maybe when I started in my academic career in DIT, maybe I just had a bit more time in my hands. But I always felt at that time when you went on Twitter and if I posted something, if I engaged in a discussion afterwards, I always felt for the most part that it was done in good faith and that if I continued to discuss with the person, I could either convince them of my viewpoint or they could convince me of, of their viewpoint, or we would reach a compromise where where we we kind of we were never going to agree with each other. 
And it was only in very rare circumstances that I would mute an individual. Um, I would never block an individual. I always felt that one aspect of the transparency work I was doing with Right to Know um, kind of compelled me to leave my Twitter account open so that everybody could see the material that I was posting. Um, but at the same time, if people engaged in kind of nuisance, repetitive behavior where they were being insulting or whatever it might be, I would mute them so I wouldn't see what they were saying. Um, and also, I wouldn't be tempted to engage. But over the past year, I found that that just wasn't working anymore. And I just had to start blocking accounts en masse to the extent that I think I probably have blocked 3,000 accounts over the past three to four months. And no matter how many accounts you block, more accounts pop up, probably run by the same people, individuals probably running 10 or 20 accounts, probably accounts being run in a kind of uh, in in as part of disinformation um, campaigns and it's like whack-a-mole you could never remove them all so what has happened is i just i've just disengaged largely from twitter yeah um, it's just, it's and i've moved to other platforms but those other platforms don't really have the critical mass yet but i'm hopeful i'm hopeful one of them will develop into a kind of uh, that older version of Twitter, which was a place where people could mingle in a respectful way, could could follow experts, could follow scientists, could follow journalists, could find accurate information. And then not only that, the great liberating part of it was that it allowed those people to ask questions of a scientist or an expert or a politician or whatever it was but obviously that it would be done in a respectful way. Yeah, I, I agree. And, um, you know, hope, I'm, I'm on all of those um, up-and-coming platforms in the hope that it will um, end up that way. We have some time, so I want to talk to you about um, Right to Know. I've been doing a lot of research on it. It's an amazing organization, but can you maybe explain to our listeners in a few minutes just what the mission is and why you decided that this was an important thing to focus so much on? Well, I suppose it, it kind of it, it kind of came out of the work I was doing anyway. So the journalism I was doing over time became more and more focused on FOI, and especially when I moved into my teaching job, because FOI was was brilliant in the sense that it was timeless. So you could get the records today. The story doesn't need to be written tomorrow. The story might just as easily be written in four or five weeks' time. So it fit in with the schedule where, you know, if I had a super busy week lecturing and so on, I could put the journalism on hold a little bit and then maybe catch up on it when things were quieter. And around that time, I mentioned Gavin Sheridan earlier. He had been, both of us had in different ways been pushing the boundaries of what you could access um, using FOI and using also the access to information on the environment regulations. And Gavin in particular his focus was on the the more legalistic aspect of it. Um, and him working with a solicitor called Fred Logue, they began to take a couple of uh, court cases. And there was, a, there was a couple of famous cases they took over what were called the Trichet letters. These were um, letters from the European Central Bank to the Department of Finance, basically telling, instructing them what to do during the period of the bailout. And they took another famous case, which was to to make NAMA amenable to requests under the Access to Information on the Environment regulations. And they won those cases. And I suppose the two of us came together then with a couple of other people. And for the last kind of um, five or six years, we've been working kind of cooperatively where we basically try to push the boundaries of what people can get using information access. Because, I mean, to me, the, the great strength of information access like FOI and so on is that it's a universal right. So a lot of people associate it very closely with journalism, but it's not only for journalists, it's for every single citizen. And every single person listening to this has as much right to make an FOI request as I do or the most high-profile journalist in the country does. And they're all supposed to be dealt with 
exactly the same. So I always felt it was a real democratizing force and also a great leveler within journalism because the most junior reporter in a newspaper could use it just as easily as the most senior person. That's exactly what I thought. Yeah, it's exactly what I thought, Ken. Sorry for jumping in on you. When you when I started to follow this, I said to myself, what a tool to have for somebody who's just starting off in journalism, because it gives them so much access and puts them on an even keel with everyone else. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. And, And that word you mentioned, access. So when you when you're starting off and you look at there's people in your office and they cover politics and they're based down in Leinster House. And they've been working there for 15 years and they know all the ministers because they knew them from when they were TDs and senators and they might know all the special advisors and they, you know, their level of access is really high. And similarly, when somebody has been covering crime for 20 years, their level of access is high because they'll have developed relationships with with Gardaí and prison officers and soldiers and so on maybe when they were younger and as they advanced further. So it, it, it can feel very daunting for a young reporter, especially trying to break into a specialism. And FOI is, is a good level or like it's not a, you know, it doesn't make the playing field completely even, but it certainly gives you a fighting chance as a beginner journalist or somebody who's not in a mainstream media organization to, to get access to very useful information. Um, and I suppose one other thing that I have done is um, kind of as part of Right to Know is I've written a beginner guide to freedom of information. And it's just a kind of a, you know, a, a kind of a, a get started kit for people who've never made a request um, to just give them the basic steps. I suppose it's to 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 teach people most of all that FOI is a really simple thing that it may appear complex in one sense, and obviously there are huge complexities to it, but equally, it can be as simple as just finding an email address and saying, under the FOI Act, I want a copy of X, Y, and Z. And that's it. And everything should, the mechanism should then click into gear. So there is no barrier. There's no um there's no high level of knowledge required to begin to dip your toes into FOI and other information access tools. The other thing that I wanted to talk to you about was that you make a point in there and your objectives is that that you can obtain the information in a digital format because there's nothing worse than, say, you get handed these you know, hundreds and hundreds of pieces of paper or books or something like that when you do request the information. And, you know... The fact that nowadays you're required, you know, you can require it in a digital format so that you can actually scan a document and search for the keywords rather than having to spend hours and hours trolling through, you know, information that you don't really need to read. That's an incredible advantage as well. Yeah. And I suppose when I started doing FOI, the majority of the the, the records that you would get would be paper based Um kind of there there's. There, there are layers to this as well, because while you can get them electronically, oftentimes what um, public bodies will do is they will print out the records, um, redact them, photocopy them, and then scan them. So that oftentimes it can be quite difficult to turn the electronic record you have got back into something that is searchable. Um, and it's difficult to stop that. It's difficult to stop them doing that. You've, um, but but you can specify that they come in their original format, which can be particularly important when it comes to issues around databases and and uh, statistics and so on. Because obviously, if you have an Excel spreadsheet, there's a lot of things you can do with that compared to a printed out page with a table on it. And um, yeah. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about was that you assist and train citizens. Do you still do that as a service? Now, I know it's we, clearly to make a point that this is not a free service, but you do um, you do assist and train citizens and journalists. Yeah, too. yeah. And I, obviously, because I'm self-employed, I, I, I can't do that for free anymore. I would have no. been able to in the past. But yeah, so I would. I would help. I would provide training for journalists working in local papers, for kind of public participation networks, for... 
NGOs, environmental activists, um, some national newspaper reporters. So uh, uh, political staff, I, anybody who wants to learn about FOI, I, I, I'm happy to help teach them. You know, there would be obviously a limit where if I felt that person was going to to use FOI for the purposes of uh, uh, weaponizing information or spreading disinformation or spreading hateful material, I would choose not to provide training in those circumstances. But there, I can't stop anybody ever using FOI. Sure. I mean, I even think of FOI being used in other circumstances that would be really handy and it's so important. Like even for authors, for example, even if they're doing, you know, um, fiction, but they want to include some, you know, important information of the time. I mean, FOI is so important because they wouldn't have been able to get access to that information previously. And, you know, it's stuff like that that you don't think about. And as I'm watching and I'm reading, you know, over the last couple of days, what what your objectives were, I was going, God, there's just so much, you know, important things that could be available if FOI I was just so much more aware of. Yeah, and obviously there's there's um, again because there's this connection between FOI and journalism in the public mind. But actually, sixty percent of FOIs um, every year are done by um, members of their pub of the public for their own personal information. And yes. a lot of this yeah. would be scenarios where people are looking for their medical records, where they feel they've been mistreated, where perhaps they've had an issue with housing or social welfare and feel that they've um, been treated poorly. So there's a whole other kind of slightly more hidden aspect to FOI where lots of people are using it to get copies of their own information to see if their cases, whatever it might be, be it health um, or welfare related, um, whether they have been handled correctly. And tell me, Ken, where can people find your um, This Right to Know? Do you have a website? We have a website, it's just righttoknow.ie, and then my beginner's guide to FOI is just at www.kenfox.com. And if people just search FOI beginner guide, they'll find it too. Great. Well, we put that in the uh, show notes. Now, before I leave you, I want to talk to you about your fiction, because this is something that always amazes me, the way you can go from writing fact-based books and then suddenly say, do you know what? I think I'm going to write a fiction book. Where where did that come from? Um, well, I suppose, like, I've, I, there, it's it's been a simultaneous thing for pretty much all of my life. Um, I think most journalists, um, almost all journalists at some point attempt to, to write a novel because um, you're writing every day anyway, and you develop uh, a level of skill in writing clearly and so on. Um, but the thing about publishing a novel, getting a novel published, getting an agent, um, getting a publishing deal is it's 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 incredibly difficult. Um, you know, it's like buying a scratch card and winning the five thousand euro prize. You know, it's it's very unusual. Yeah. So over the years, I have written um, four novels, and uh, none of which were ever published, and kind of. I suppose the thing with writing a novel is it's it's a little bit all consuming because the the amount of um time that goes into it and also then when you're finished after putting this enormous amount of time into it to have it rejected is pretty depressing um so maybe i I probably should have learned this lesson a long long time ago uh during the pandemic, I started to write short stories and I suppose the um my my areas of interest are in kind of in science fiction and horror and in speculative fiction. That's what I read and that's what I write primarily. Um, and I suppose the beauty of a short story is that, you know, you're not spending six months, 12 months working on it. You know, you might be able to write it in a in a few days or a couple of weeks. So the investment emotionally and the investment in terms of time isn't quite so pronounced. And it means that when they inevitably do get rejected, um, it doesn't, it's not quite, it doesn't hit quite as hard. And also, I suppose, because there are so many magazines and journals out there that, you know, you do have a better chance of getting, uh, of getting them published. Um, And I'm kind of one of those people that I feel, you know, I feel a compulsion to write. Um, that's very hard to resist. 
and I have a compulsion towards kind of imaginary worlds and imaginary characters that I, I just I find it hard to resist. It's and it kind of it, I find it helpful and therapeutic and enjoyable to to write stories, um, even if nobody's going to read. <laughs> have you not thought about self publishing? Um, I have. I mean, I kind of. Uh, I have a little plan in my head around um, short stories and so on that I'm kind of going to go along with. I mean, the difficulty with self-publishing is that, um, you know, the it, it's difficult. It's, it's difficult to get people to buy books in the first place. Um, you know, it, it's... It's a very it's a, it, to become a kind of a successful author in the in the sense of of being able to, for instance, even make a living or even make a partial living out of it is is really very difficult. Like even um, you know with um, Paul Lynch winning the Booker Prize recently, and Paul and me used to sit back to back in the Sunday Tribune offices. He was a sub editor there. And after this, the Tribune closed, he was also out of a job. But even in the interviews over the past um, few months, you know, this is the first time he's ever been in a position where he's been kind of uh, financially kind of secure. And he's quite open about that, you know, how how difficult it was. And he was a, he was he's a successful author and um, has a, long before the booker, he had written some some terrific um, um, novels that, you know, got rave reviews, uh, were republished in France and in other countries. And yet, you know, so to me, at the moment, it's a little bit of a hobby. I like to, I like to to get them published in in the various journals and magazines. And as I said, I I just, I like to do it. I have this compulsion to write, but that idea of investing six or 12 months into doing a novel again does not appeal to me unless there was a guarantee at the end of it. Um, but doing it in a kind of a speculative sense now, that I, I, would, I wouldn't do that again. Well, hopefully we'll get, we get a chance to, uh, to all have a read of it, you know, um, because it'd, it'd be nice to, uh, it's always nice to, to see some new work being put out there. Now, I have one last question. I asked this of all of my guests. So um, what are you reading, watching or listening to at the moment? Um, so I, I generally I try to I, I try to read a book a week. That's the target wow. that I set for myself. Fair play to um, And so last year I'd set a target of uh, you know one a week, and I hit fifty six. Yeah. Wow. Okay. The, the three the best the best I read were a book called The Prestige, which is is also a famous film. Um, yeah, yeah, I've seen but that. It, yeah. The book is absolutely incredible. And then I read two books by um, Susanna Clark, um, one called Piranesi, her newer one, which was terrific. And then I went back to read Jonathan Strange and Dr. Norell, which I had never read before because it's such a huge book. You know, it's kind of Ulysses type length, but um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a terrific book. It's, it's, it's just a pity she hasn't written more than two. And then I like um, other stuff that I read last year. I read a few by Don Winslow. I like those and Bill Bryson's kind of travel book. Um, and then I, I've obviously, I obviously, because I'm doing the writing and because of the kind of genres that I like, I read a good bit kind of of science fiction and uncanny and horror and ghost. Um, sometimes as much for sparking ideas as 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 anything else. I suppose then in terms of watching them, I actually, because I enjoyed uh, Jonathan Strange so much, I went back and I've, I'm in the middle of watching the TV series of that. And I've been trying to catch up on all the big movies that I missed during the COVID pandemic. And because, you know, I didn't get to go to the cinema or anything like that. And then again, I'd be watching it. I watch like kind of horror and ghost movies and, um, more to more for a creative spark um, than anything else um, and then the last thing I suppose around listening is I mean I listen to music pretty much all day every day because I work at home and there's only me and the dog here for a good chunk of it 
Um, I like things like the Black Dog and New Model Army and all them witches. And then lately I listened to uh, uh, quite a bit of traditional music, like kind of the Dubliners and things like that. And it's because there's something in some of those old ballads and songs that I want to, that, that I'm trying to bring through in some of the ghost stories that I'm writing at the minute. Um, there, I, I just, I, I love the, you know, I love that. Well, I, I listen, when I grew up, I listened to that music by default because my parents liked it. And, you know, and Johnny Cash and things like that. That's not what I'm listening to now. But yeah, so I had, I, I, I like a lot of different types of music. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because you mentioned New Model Army. It's been a while since I've heard that name being mentioned. I remember um, bringing, bringing that in and playing a record on them. Um, in the, my old house back in Ballyfermis and my older brother going, what is that crap? You know, <laughs> it's like he, he was kind of his blue oyster cult fan, you know, so it was, it was a nightmare for him to listen to. So was, that was a good name drop there, Ken. Nice to hear that again. Yeah, to the extent, you know, that they're still releasing <laughs> new music. and They are, yes. You know, it's, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, so uh, there are certain things, you know, that um, I think they always, I, I read one time that the music that you like during kind of those the college years, kind of that period, that kind of 17 to 20 to 21, they, those are the ones that you can never escape. Those are the ones never. that stick with you for good. 100% agree. Absolutely. <laughs> I know I'm still there with all of those stuff. I still play them when I'm sitting at home. I put the headphones on so I don't annoy anyone else. But uh, sometimes I sing them out a little bit too much to the annoyance of my uh, seven and 11 year old daughters, you know. <laughs> Ken, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Uh, thanks so much for giving so much of your time. Thanks for inviting me. No worries. And again, um, so if we want to catch you online, we can just go to KenFox.com. That's right, isn't it? That's it. Exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. Now it's been really great having you. Thanks very much. And thanks to everybody out there who's been listening to us today. My name is Ken Sweeney and I'll talk to you again real soon. So take care, y'all. Bye-bye.